something outside. What is that? to Monster X Radio. This is Gunnar Monson. It's a beautiful day here in Oregon, and we are prepared to, uh, we're actually pre-recording the show today to deliver it to you on Sunday. Um, So uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Um, As you may know, if you are familiar with Monster X, I am also the the, uh, sponsor of Monster X Radio with the Sasquatch Coffee Company, which is www.squatchcoffee.com. Uh, you can go there and, and check it out. Get yourself uh, some Sasquatch Coffee. If you haven't had it, uh, it is it is not just a, a cool brand. It's also really good coffee. So, um, And I'm sure that my co-host will uh, 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 agree with that. Oh, oh yeah, today. it's so good. I, I uh, not only drink it, I eat the grinds. It's that good. It's uh, I don't take it in. I take it everywhere. Camping. Uh, I always, you know, it's kind of like a credit card. Don't leave them home without it. Yeah, that's that's my motto because I, I love like coffee that, that much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, great stuff. Yeah. You ha- you had a busy weekend. You were out actually uh, in the woods with our friend Larry. Um, anything interesting in your your uh, weekend adventure? Uh, not incredibly, but yeah, there were some interesting things, you know, Larry and I spent the, a couple of days out in the woods and, uh, uh, one thing to uh, uh, note was the amount of huckleberry we saw for this time of year. We were absolutely floored some of the areas we were hiking in that there was still a credible amount of huckleberry and some of it not even ripe yet. Uh, lots of, uh, lots of bear, bear sign, bear tracks and a couple of cougar tracks, uh, and really didn't, as far as, uh, suspect evidence or anything of interest during the day, you know, physically speaking. Didn't really find anything. Didn't really come across anything. But uh, at night, there were some interesting vocals. There were some, definitely some interesting vocals. Um, a couple of uh, odd and very peculiar knocks. Yeah, you know, stuff of that nature and caliber. Um, then we're still pouring through the audio. You know, we're talking about, you know, hours of audio, and we're looking at that and listening to that. And, um, but it is, it, uh, we were in an area of interest uh, for a lot of different reasons, and uh, it uh, may have paid out a little bit. Uh, it seems like something was paying attention to us um, in the wee hours of the morning. So uh, yet to yet to uh, figure out exactly what that was, but uh, it was good having Larry out uh, out with me in the field and, and getting to spend a couple of days with him, enjoying nature. Yeah, I'm. I may have to give uh, Larry your nickname, Hardcore, because that Larry had actually had surgery. Uh, to have uh, <laughs> on his on his stomach, uh, like on Thursday, and then I see on Facebook that he's out in the woods on on Friday in one area, and then uh, Saturday, what he was out with you, or he was out Thursday night, and then Friday and Saturday night with you. Yeah, he, yeah, correct. He's hard. He is hardcore. That yeah, that, I invited uh, him out. <laughs> I invited him out for a reason. Uh, you know, I figured I could definitely run faster than him this time. So uh, you know, with all the stitches, he wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of our trip out to by Mount Adams when I had, I don't know, but at least been like a week and a half or something when I'd had my gallbladder out. And we and we went out and we joked about, you know, Larry was joking about being there to put my guts back in if they they needed to be. So uh, I had to do the, the things we do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he, uh, yeah, he made it out in and out. And uh, it sounds like you guys had some interesting times out in the woods. Interesting, for sure. So with us today is Mr. Bob Strain. Um, If you're not familiar with Bob, Bob is a researcher, and he lives down in California. He and his wife, Kathy, uh, have been researching and attempting to document 
uh, this unrecognized species for 14 years together. Um, Bob's a retired fireman and paramedic with a lifelong interest in the outdoors. Uh, back when he was 18 years old, which I understand has been a while, he had a daytime visual sighting while hunting uh, in remote Idaho. Many years later, this experience, along with others, led him to pursue the mystery and become involved in research to the extent he is today. And we, uh, Bob is also uh, a co-founder and on the board of directors of the Alliance of Independent Bigfoot Researchers, and as well as, as a research member of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Um, Bob, welcome to OnStrex Radio. Hi, uh, Gunner. Hey, Shane. How are you guys doing? I'm doing, doing well. Today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for joining yes. us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Bob, just for those the uninitiated, can you uh, give us a little uh, Bob Strange story? Uh, you mean uh, my sighting or who I am? Just, no. Yeah, just your background. What got you? Led oh, you to okay. Be in Big yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, I uh, like, like you said, I had a, a daytime visual sighting uh, back in 1975 when I was 18 in Idaho, and it was something that had sort of perplexed me and stayed in the back of my mind for years. I'm a lifelong deer hunter with my dad mostly, but with other people as well, and I've had strange experiences um, in the, here in the Sierras where I live in California, and um it's just something that had that I've never really dwelled on, but I, like I say, I like like you said, I'm a retired firefighter paramedic uh, from here in California, and um, it was the the Bigfoot research thing was never something that I was ever really even I never even thought of until actually I I just stumbled upon one day. Um, Brian Brown's Bigfoot Forums back in 2002, right after he first established it. I was just learning to use the Internet and kind of surfed across there one day and started reading some stories and, and reading some BFRO reports as well. And uh, then it all started coming back to me, uh, the experiences that I've had in the woods while hunting and, of course, that visual sighting. And, um, you know, it just intrigued me. And I went to the 2003 International Bigfoot Symposium in Willow Creek, California, and along with uh, Brian Brown and a couple of other guys. And um, that's where I met Kathy. Um, I ended up um, uh, marrying her, of course, in 2005. And um, she was with the BFRO at that, at that time, and I became a member of the BFRO. And then shortly after we got married, we left the group and and formed another group and with just trying to set some standards. It's not really an active group per se where we have expeditions that go out on group outings other than just friendly campouts and stuff with other members of the organization, but trying to set some scientific standards for evidence collection and documentation. So, um, so we've been doing that for, well, since about 2006 or so, but, Long about 2012, uh, we had friends that were members of the... Kathy had spoken at several events for the Texas group. Uh, back then, it was known as the TBRC. And I gave a presentation in um, Tyler, Texas, as well, on some of our research efforts. And and some members of the group that we're close friends with for a long time, Alton Higgins and Brian Brown and Daryl Collier, invited Kathy and, and and me out to come out to their research area in, in southeast Oklahoma and, and sort of kind of give a unbiased, uh, um, uh, objective um, opinion of what they had going on there. And subsequently we became... Uh, members of uh, the TBRC and since changed to the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. And so we've been with them for oh, over five years now. And um, it's it's just something that's in our blood. Kathy has been uh, um, researching 
the Bigfoot phenomenon much longer than I have. That's the reason she became an anthropologist is to is to study the Bigfoot phenomenon. So it's just uh, just sort of a match made in heaven in, in many different ways. And um, you know, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed uh, a lot of the people that I've met and, and meet you guys at at the at Todd and uh, nieces and, and Diane Stocking's mm-hmm. nieces. Um, gathering up in Oregon at Beachfoot and it's uh met a really really cool uh outstanding people along the way and I'm 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 glad you invited me to come on here. It's uh, I've listened to you guys uh podcast for a while and and uh I think you guys are doing some great stuff and also I have some great coffee. I just finished off a pound of that but French vanilla and it's Bam. <laughs> pretty awesome. Thanks for the plug. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no problem. Uh, just watching the mailbox. <laughs> well, well, Bob, it's a it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I got a lot of respect for you and your wife Kathy, um, and and Nowak and uh, everything you guys are doing. I got a huge amount of respect for you guys. I've been following you guys for years, and I've had the opportunity. Uh, a few times now to uh, hear you speak in person and share a conversation, and uh, yeah, what a pleasure! So I'm really, really happy to have you on the show today. Um, <clears throat> sure, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, how does it work? You know, you and Kathy are—you guys are quite the uh, dynamic duo. Uh, there's a few of, there's a few couples in the Bigfoot world that, or uh, you know, that are researching the subject that are that are, that are uh, pretty keen, pretty pretty good at what they do. And you and Kathy are, are one of them for sure, uh, right at the top there. Um, how does how does it work being? How do you guys work this into your married life? And and you know she's you know she's got so much going on with her career and and you know vice versa. What's um, how does that work? You know doing this stuff. Do you guys agree on everything? Do you guys ever come into uh, disagree on stuff? Uh, well, well, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I, I, occasionally. We disagree on stuff, but we generally um, uh, find that uh, we bounce uh, stuff off of each other and, uh, and and come to some type of a unified conclusion of the evidence uh, that we are uh, being exposed to. Uh, she has um, uh, a very uh, keen, critical mind, and uh, she's, of course, a scientist, and I'm... Um, the the well although the, I'll, I'll tell you she's right out there in the field just as much as anybody else in no doubt. and uh in the group but um but no we make a good pair because we've sort of had a long standing um well understanding if you will that we verify each other's each other's observations and bounce it off of each other and it, it kind of helps to to, to come to some type of a unified conclusion as to what we're experiencing, and uh, it's it's been pretty dy- dynamic. I mean, our our summers. Uh, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better situation than what we have, really, because you know we in the summertime we go camping. We're we're so fortunate to to live here in the Sierras. We only live about an hour away of, from Yosemite National Park in the Sierras, and north central california and very close to where i've had a pretty cool experience uh, 25 years ago and and we have some research areas that we that we come to up here and and i'm able to i'm semi-retired i still teach a, a emergency medical technician class on the weekends but during the week i'm available and i do hunt down reports if she gets reports there she works for the national forest service and if she gets reports, she's known as the go-to lady um, at Stanislaus National Forest for any type of Bigfoot reports that come in. And, and, and re- believe it or not, reports do come in. So she'll send me on a field mission during the week to go track down uh, some footprint, footprints that were found or some, some areas of some potential activity. And, of course, I go out and do my best to document that and, and come back with a report. And if we think it's something that requires further investigation, then, of course, we'll go back up there. But we do camp out up there quite a bit. And, and our vacations are all centered around uh, looking for this as a creature. So 
we do occasionally, you know, cut loose and go on a cruise or something like that. But but in the last five years, our vacations have included going to the bug-infested jungles of southeast Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, like I said, you guys are a dynamic duo and, and are, you know, the consummate uh, investigators, researchers. Uh, man, what a lot of traveling, though. I mean, how so where are you guys are at now? I mean, I know you're living in California, but being a part of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, I mean, can you, you know, if you're looking back, say, look back eight years, could you imagine yourself uh, doing what you're doing and being involved with uh, such a group? I mean, it's it's kind of an amazing little trip, I would imagine. Uh, it really is. No, I, I really, I really couldn't. Uh, uh, back at that time, uh, about eight years ago or so, we were totally convinced that uh, we were pretty much on our own here in Northern California. So we were gearing up to 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 get all of the equipment, uh, night vision. We're going to get thermal uh, recording equipment, uh, and just racking my brain, coming up with all kinds of of things to try to. To, to trick these animals into getting, um, you know, footage of them, uh, set up a, a camera and a VCR and a deep cycle marine battery and a footlocker and would sit in the back of my truck, had a little hole cut out in the trunk to try and the days before digital cameras were along and we had to, you know, run uh, real slow VHS tapes on a big VCR with an inverter. Oh my goodness! So it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of work, but those are the kind of things that we did. And we were looking for something, some area that that had more activity. The things about Northern California here, the Sierras, has a lot of activity, um, but everything is so spread out. It's the, the the forests are completely different. The ecosystems and the, the forests are spread out so that these these animals can go just about anywhere they want, and they don't have to be. They're not neck down. They're not bottled down and and pigeonholed into one little area, which they sort of seem to be to some respect in southeast Oklahoma. So uh, it was really it was uh, very fortunate. Uh, just that all the stars aligned. We 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 had in the past uh, approached the TBRC um, about becoming members, but at that time they were a different group than they are now. So they have morphed, morphed, and they've evolved, and and that changes were made there, and so it's more conducive uh, for. And, and they happened upon this area. They they were pretty spread out and they really weren't concentrated in one area, so they had different areas of operation and they were really looking to 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 try and hone in on on keen habitat. So it just all sort of happened at the at the same time that they pulled it all together and and we were available and luckily enough we were good enough friends with many of them that they had enough um confidence in us to come and involve us so um you know we 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 still do research here in northern california and we follow up on reports but it's it's a lot different the two areas are completely different in their methodology and uh southeast oklahoma is just i'm if you've never been there i I, when they first told me, oh, yeah, no, we've got these Bigfoots down here in southeast Oklahoma, I thought, yeah, right, please. <laughs> I mean, you've got to be kidding me because I grew up in West Texas, and all I'd ever seen of Oklahoma was flatlands, prairie dogs, and um, tumbleweeds. And when I'd never really been to this area, there, it's over close to the Arkansas border. When I got there, it was like, oh, whoa, what is going on here? And um, and they were right. They were right. And so it's it's uh, it's a different world. It's like Jurassic Park back there. So it was something that, that we were really happy to be involved in, and it's just something that's a challenge. It's a huge challenge for us in a lot of different ways just to get there and to participate on an extended basis. But we have spent many, many weeks there over the past five years. So it's been pretty exciting, actually. 
Well, I, I want to backtrack just a little bit. And um, I don't know that I've, at least recently, I haven't heard your personal uh, encounter story from, from when you were a kid. Um, can you, can you oh. share that with us? Sure, sure. Yeah, I could I could do that briefly. Um, the, 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 and this uh, typed out report is available on the BFRO website. It was in uh, Custer County, Idaho, in 1975. Year I graduated high school, and I think it says hunters have early morning encounter. And um, I was there with a group of guys, my dad, my cousin, and some friends of theirs, and we had. Um, been hunting in a rural area, very rural, right up against what was then called the Salmon River Wilderness Area. Now it's called the River of No Return, right up close to the Montana border, north of Chalice, Idaho. And it was um, uh, sort of a weather was moving in, and we hadn't seen much deer. We had deer, elk, bear tags, and my dad and I uh, devised this plan. We saw these two hillsides that kind of came right down together to a creek in the bottom, and we were going to do a deer drive. And um, so he said, son, you go up over that hill, and I'll go up um, over this other hill, and we'll see if we can kick out some game uh, to each other. And so we did, and I got up to the top of the ridge faster than he did, and I'm sitting down there behind some rocks, and I see uh, on the open hillside across from me, so it's like unobstructed view, about 300 yards, I would say, um, distance. And I see coming out of the tree line what looks like a bear. And it's down on all fours, and it's coming across this very steep, rocky hillside. And it keeps looking behind itself like, like I thought, oh, man, that's a bear. And it kept, like, stopping and turning and looking. And I thought, well, what's it looking for? What's it looking at? And I, I was afraid it was a, a sow bear with cubs, and I wasn't going to shoot that. But it kept looking like it was waiting. It would stop, and it would turn, and it would look. And looking like, what is it looking at? And finally, it was going straight across the hillside, and then it stopped, and it turned, and it went straight up the hill. And I thought, well, by this time, if I haven't seen any cubs come out, um, maybe it's not a sow with cubs. I don't know what it's looking at. And it was going up to very steep, and it was the kind of rocks where you step on them, and they just, like, flake away like shale, and it's just clatters, rocks clatter all the way down to the bottom. And I thought, man, if I shoot that uh, right there, that bear right there is going to roll all the way to the bottom, down into that creek bed, and it's just going to completely tear it up. And there was a flat landing right up near the ridge where it was headed. And I thought, well, I'll wait for it to get right up there on that flat. I was thinking, I was being lazy. I'm going to, you know, they'll drop there, and I won't have to, uh, you know, I won't have to retrieve it out of that deep crevasse. So Being got smart. up to the top. And, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I was getting, yeah, I was, it got right up to the top to that flat landing, and I'm just getting my, my range because cause I was going to have to uh, shoot over the top of it uh, just a couple of feet at that range. And so I was getting my yardage and trying to figure it out and, and was just about to squeeze the trigger, and I had it in my crosshairs, and it stood up on two legs. And it turned one way, then the other, and I thought, oh, that's awful strange for a bear to be doing. And then uh, it's strange how the human mind works. And I thought, what, what did I say? No, I missed something. That's not a bear. That's a guy. Wait a minute. What happened to the bear? And so I put my rifle down. I'm looking for my binoculars. What happened to the bear? And where's the guy? Well, that's a guy. And I could see the hands. And then it turned and it started walking away, same direction it had been going before. And it was doing the, the paddy walk, the leaning forward, doing the cross-country skier-type motion. And I thought, man, that dude's going to get shot. And God, he's huge. I, don't, I didn't see a backpack. I didn't see anything in his hands. The rifle wasn't wearing orange. And I thought, oh, man, what? what is up with this? And I could almost cranked off around over its head just to go, hey, dude, you're going to get shot. And I watched it walk all the way off into the tree line. And I'm thinking, what the heck happened to the bear? Where's the bear? And I'm looking all over. Man, I lost the bear. Where did the bear go? And I kept sitting there, and about five minutes later, I see a little speck of orange way back over where the, the same creature had originally, this animal 
originally came out of the tree line, and I see the little orange speck. I'm looking at that. What is that, a butterfly? What is that, a flower? And I'm looking. I'm looking real close, and it's my dad, and he's wearing an orange vest. But the thing is, he was only about half the size of this animal. And I'm thinking, what, you know, made my head hurt. I really didn't know anything about Bigfoot. I was from West Texas, little town. We had two TV channels. And I, I I might have seen the PG film, but yeah, back then I was like blowing up army men with with you know, firecrackers and catching snakes and stuff, and and it just it was not on my radar at all. And um, so he radioed me on a little CB walkie-talkie, and he said, "Son, I got to turn around. Well, this way is way too steep." And it's way too loose, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kill myself if I try walking across this hill. And I said, "All right, Dad, but who's with you?" He said, "There's nobody with me, son." I go, "There is some dude, and he's huge, and he's right above you, and <laughs> there's nobody over here, son." So, uh, we go back to the truck, and we looked on the map, and go, "Where's that guy going? What'd you see again?" Well, two days later. And, and this is interesting. It snowed the next day, the day after we went out before dawn. We're still at our remote hunting camp, and we're going up the four-wheel drive road, and it's all covered in snow. And as we're cruising up this road, I see off to the right, everybody in the truck saw it. It looked like a burned-out tree stump. And as we got closer, it got shorter and shorter and wider. And then finally, it just looked like an oil slick going across this two-track, all the way across, covered the entire two-track. And then just as our lights hit it, it went over the edge, dropped over the embankment, knocked a bunch of snow off the tree. So one guy got out and went over the hill with a flashlight and a pistol to see what it was and came back in a big hurry. And was really scared and said there was something hairy down there hiding in the trees. And he, he was, it scared him. So by the end of the day, he had come up with a story. He said, well, you know what I think that what that was? was that was a hunter on horseback wearing a fur coat with the hood pulled up. I said, wait a minute, that wasn't a, that wasn't a horse. When you're on horseback, we saw across the road and said, well, how did you decide? Did you see the horse? He said, well, no, it had to be a horse because, on a horse because otherwise it couldn't have been that tall. So each of us in our own mind, we came up with something that fit in a box that our mind could deal with. He saw a Bigfoot walking away from him just a few feet away in the dark with a flashlight. I saw what I thought was a bear and stand up and then walk off like a man. And i that's what I labeled it as. And so it's just amazing. And when people say that, you know, I listen to, you know, some reports of, of people say, well, I saw this like this guy and it was huge and it was hairy, but I don't know where he was going. And I can totally understand that because your brain, if you're not ready for it, it's going to put it in a box. And that's what that's what we did there um, on that trip. So that yeah. was something that stuck with me for a long, long time. And, and I finally figured it out when I got on the Bigfoot farms and started reading reports. And, and, and that's when I just felt so stupid. I went, oh, wow, gee, that was a Bigfoot. <laughs> so it had to be. Yeah. But... Bob, so, you know, you, you eventually came to a realization as to what you saw. Uh, how, how did your family, uh, your dad, I mean, how did, what was their perception of, of what you, you know, you guys saw? Well, I mean, what, you know, what transpired that day you guys were out hunting? Well, um, you know, like I said, it wasn't for many years later. And uh, my family has always been real receptive of, of me, and I'm not was never one to make up stories. I did not have imaginary friends. I was one of the most you know critical, uh, down to earth uh, kids you'd ever want to. I was kind of a nerd uh, to you know to be around, and so they you know they believed me, and they never questioned me. Now now with my dad, it was interesting because. Uh, actually, like I say, it wasn't until about 2002 when I figured it all out. And to my dad, it made sense. He and I had another experience like three or four years later up here in the Sierras where he lived after I moved out here from Texas. And we were sitting around the campfire one night. We'd been up uh, uh, right on the edge of a wilderness area where we were going to hunt. And we went in a, a month early and built some 
deer blinds, brushed up some deer blinds. And so we were camped at a remote spot all by ourselves, sitting around the campfire. And uh, we, you know, I've got a fire going, and, and Dad's on the other side of the campfire. And he goes, come over here, son, and look out there in the darkness and tell me what you see. And I, I said, God, Dad, it looks like a giant set of red eyes staring at us. And he goes, huh, what do you suppose that is? I said, oh, well, I don't know, uh, a raccoon up in a tree or something? He goes, hmm, only problem is, son, that's meadow, and there ain't no trees out there. And I said, oh, okay. So over the period of the next half hour or so, then there was two sets of red eyes, then there were three sets of red eyes, and one of them way over to the right, down low, going back and forth. And we, I shined my flashlight at it, and it would, like, turn sideways, and it would disappear. And then I'd go back and sit down, and the red eyes would appear again. And he said, well, uh, this is, he goes, that's weird. I don't know what those are. But anyway, we got back in the camper. We had a cab over camper, and he said, let's eat dinner. And get up there, and he's making some sandwiches. And then something smacked the side of that camper so hard that it rocked and knocked stuff out of the cabinets. And it just sounded like a gunshot going off, and the whole truck rocked side side to side. We got out and we looked all around. We didn't see anything, no tree limbs, no, no, no unconscious deer that ran into it, nothing. And it really kind of baffled us. So as we're getting back into the camper, something screamed out in the darkness out in front of our truck over an embankment just and I've heard that scream several times after the, after that, like a woman being murdered and a long drawn out. And then an answering scream from back where the red eyes were. And then all that night long, I had the sensation, I heard noises of stuff walking around the camper all night long. And so Dad had that experience with me. And then when I explained to him that this is, you know, behavior that's been documented by these apes, they, it made perfect sense to him. He totally accepted it. He never, never really, I mean, the, and that report is on the BFR website as well. And he's the one that actually gave that report to Kathy. So those are those are his words in that, and that was in Tuolumne County, California. So my family's been real accepting of it, and, of course, you know, Kathy's family's real accepting of, of hers um, as well. It's It's just sort of who we are. They just take it for granted, and, and um, you know, I guess it's I guess it's funny. I encounter a lot of people that just want to deny that these that these animals exist, and I can't really figure out why that is. But uh, um, I, I guess they have their own reasons. Whatever it is, they think that we should have found the body by now. We should uh, something more definitive should have been documented, and they don't want to accept the PG film, or maybe they're scared of the boogeyman. I don't, <laughs> Like no, but I'm sure yeah. they have their own reasons. Yeah, it's uh, it's what what I find amazing is you know how many uh, unreported uh, encounters such as what you and your dad experienced have not been reported. And, you know, you know there's for every one that you hear such as yours, you know there's many many more that haven't been reported. And probably in the Sierras, I mean, what a fantastic area with a long-standing history that I don't need to go into depth with you because I know you and Kathy know all about that even firsthand. Um, but yeah, there's, it's a, it's amazing to me the uh, defiance uh, at uh, what I consider to be a lot of facts. Um, but uh, you know, we we plug on, uh, and and right. speaking of plugging on, right. speaking of plugging on, I you know the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, this is not just a bunch of uh, rednecks running around with guns, you know, shooting at everything that moves. It's it's actually a group of individuals with uh, different backgrounds and trades and sciences that have common ideals and goals, you know. And uh, it's truly a, a great one one of the best groups out there, bar none, uh, when it comes to the um, uh, the, the collection of data. Uh, and vetting and, and, and really uh, looking at new avenues, new research methods, uh, and new ways to uh, obtain, um, you know, data and evidence. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, North American Wood Ape Conservancy and your role in that? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, um, they have actually assembled a, a really terrific group of people in the NAWAC, 
And we have several wildlife biologists. We have a um, couple of PhDs um, in the group. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, that, that have a, a background and a similar interest in, in documenting. And major, majority of, of the members of the NAWAC have had uh, their own experiences, and that's what got them to be members of the group in, in the first place. And what, what they've tried to do and, and have, have strived to do for, for many years is to uh, collect evidence, uh, all the evidence that they can. They had a multi-year uh, operation that they called Forest Vigil. That was before Kathy and I remember the group, and they uh, deployed um, uh, many, much like the Olympic Project is doing now, um, game cameras out in actually at several different locations. They had area X, Y, and Z, and uh, the Y and Z have gone by the wayside for different reasons, and so that's why we ended up with area X. And he just called it X, Y, and Z. It could have been one, two, three, ABC, whatever. And so, area X is not is is not trying to sound you know super you know uh, like the X Files or anything like that. It's just that's what they named it way back when. And have collected literally thousands and thousands of photographs uh, from game cameras, both uh, Recon X. Um, uh, and with the uh, infrared, and also from something called plot watcher cameras, which take a picture on uh, a time to basis, whether it's day or night, uh, just doesn't have a flash for night, so it has some drawbacks. And done a lot of research, audio recording, and have set these cameras out for months and months and months at a time. And they never really got anything uh, of their of their <laughs> the of the of the ape or the bigfoot. Uh, never got anything definitive from that, and had just sort of uh, you know tried to uh, redefine, evolve their their research practices. Uh, so um, they've they've sort of altered the way that they do things over the years. And we've tried a lot of different things, and luckily we've been able to stay in one place for years at a time. And what we've decided to do, or they decided to do the year before that Kathy and I joined, was to stay in one place for months at a time. And we would change off teams on, you know, on whatever set day it is. But we try to leave. That our camp occupied all the time, and not leave it unoccupied is what I should say. So a constant presence there, uh, with recording equipment of all kinds. And in the early days, we had lots of game cameras, and and we've and they, and they do this for months at a time. Just start in the spring and go all the way up, and finally have to pull out about the time deer season starts because that's when. That's when Southeast Oklahoma is inundated by deer hunters, and it's there's really no point in being out there with all that human activity. But nobody goes out there in the dead of summer. It's just I mean, it's got thousand percent humidity and a hundred degrees, and you know every insect and snake on the face of the planet thrives there. It's it's like an inland rainforest, if you will. It it that part of Southeast Oklahoma receives anywhere from 70 to 80 inches of rain per year, which is phenomenal. And um, so the, uh, the historical Bigfoot sightings are clustered in that area, in East Texas as well, but more so in Southeast Oklahoma. So we tried to maintain a constant presence there. And what they found out is that the, the longer you stay there, the more irritating you become to the to the native species. They are like, okay, I got it. Move. It's like if you're camping and somebody comes and camps right next to you and just stays there and just not moving. And so we think that that's probably some of the reasons that we've had such the high level of interaction. I won't even call it interaction. It's just uh, activity that that they've had. And, and and trying to trying to uh, decipher exactly what's going on. And I know I gave a presentation a couple of years ago at Beachfoot on this 
research paper that uh, the group published, the uh, Washita Project monograph, the OPM, um, and it's, it's a culmination of four years of, of, of IR activities and our research. And you know, that's been published a couple of years ago. That's available on the website, which is woodape.org. And it's free. It's a 200-page report, and it's got audio and, and, and video clips in there and lots of photographs about trying to document the, the things that we've had happen to us. And we're just trying to present it in the light as, as things that we have tried to vet as that we see uh, legitimate. That, in other words, not we, we even argue. I say that we argue. When we hear a bang, something hit the tin roof of a cabin, we argue about what it was. Was that a stick? Was that a nut? Was that a flying squirrel? And we sweep the roof and we find large rocks on the roof. And this is not in a spot where it could fall off a cliff. And, and drop uh, on the roof. And there's a baseball-sized rock on the roof. Or a bear did not do that. An elk didn't do that. A deer didn't do that. A possum didn't do that. If, uh, if it was somebody trying to hoax us doing that, well, then i, I got to give them an award for the dedication that they go through because some of the terrain out there is treacherous, humanly treacherous, you know, on a good day, in the daylight. And... And just, unless you've been there, I never really, I thought, when I first went there, I thought, ah, oh, that was a big deal. What is it? No, everything there is trying to kill you. There is poison oak, poison ivy. There is green buyer that grows over boulders, deadfall everywhere. Uh, all four poisonous snakes in North America are there, and it's a perfect environment for them. And uh, so we've, we've, we found out that, through trial and error, almost by accident, that if we have a game camera set up with an IR infrared, that that the that the animals stay away, the the bigfoot stay away, the wood apes. We call them wood apes. The reason we call them wood apes, a lot of people say, oh, you're just trying to dehumanize them. Well, number one, they're not human, and so we can't dehumanize. <laughs> actually not human but it's the local term and that's what locals in that area have, have called it you, you go different parts of the country and they all have different names the momo the the rock ape the mountain devil the the wood devil the i mean the lots of lots of local names and so the wood ape is what the area locals in that area have called it and we just then they found it the fitting to, to to call it that, so it's just kind of it's just kind of a, a natural natural thing to call to call it that. And so when we're talking to locals, everybody around there's got a story. Now many of them want to share it, but if you say Bigfoot, they go, "What? You know, it's the the, the ape, the, the wood ape, the mountain ape." Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, so we found that that the that the IR. Um, Infrared cameras seem to keep them away. We set up an IR security system on this cabin with uh, solar panels, uh, dozer batteries, uh, inverters, uh, eight-channel uh, infrared home security system recorded on a pewter DVR system and put them all the way around the cabin. And when we would turn that thing on, we would have absolutely no activity, none whatsoever. We shut it off. Boom! A rock will hit the roof, or something will slap the side of the cabin, and so we just started coming to the conclusion that we've never gotten anything on camera. Where the IR cameras don't work, we're still trying to use the plot watcher cameras, trying to use other cameras. We're trying to set up uh, situations where a a uh, uh, a remotely triggered uh, old-fashioned uh, SLR camera. Uh, we deployed some of those with a pressure pad, so if something steps on it buried under the leaves, it actually, you know, triggers the camera. Uh, we've we've set up uh, all kinds of little security perimeter alerts uh, where where uh, several. We're we're experimenting with a lot of different things. Alton Higgins has set up some string traps, what we call string traps, not really a trap, it's just a black sewing thread 
uh, stretches across the trail or an area of likely ingress or egress of a, of a Bigfoot and stretch it across there. And if something comes through there, it'll um, it's only tied secure at one end. The other end is just gently wrapped around another tree at a height of seven and a half feet. So if something passes through there, it'll drag the, the uh, sewing thread one direction and we'll know not only where it went through, but which direction it was traveling. And so uh, we did that uh, for a couple of years. Alton Higgins thought of it. And then uh, a wildlife biologist from Maine, uh, John Perry, came up with an idea. That's something that he had been using in his research of uh, uh, birds and uh, small reptiles is using a radio transmitter tag and trying to figure out a way to get a radio transmitter tag on um, one of these animals, and through the brainstorming uh, between him and another um, uh, uh, wildlife guy uh, that we have, Mark McClurkin, that came up with an idea of attaching a little tiny, tiny, tiny little radio transmitter, actually designed for turtles or birds, inside of a cucklebur which is a big nasty bird that gets stuck in horses' tails and stuff like that. And and, and it's, it, it has a little magnet, tiny little magnet, about the size of a, of a little Tez piece of candy. It's tiny. And as soon as the magnet comes off of that thing, it starts emitting a radio uh, beacon. It's only it's a very short range and very short battery life, only a few months. And... But if you can track it, you have to take an antenna to track the thing. And so they deployed, we deployed actually um, seven of these two years ago and in an area where where we had had uh, our string trap actually uh, set off. And, and we, we deployed a tag and we followed it for about nine months. Uh, through uh, radio tracking systems, and it was it was a harrowing experience. And we had to use uh, people on ATVs, jeeps, on foot crews, uh, blood, sweat, and tears. Finally, locating this tag, actually by using a private airplane, and uh, and with the omnidirectional antenna and zeroing in on it. We had teams trying to get a visual on it, but whatever the animal is on, we never got a visual. Uh, but whatever it was on was moving faster than any of our teams could could follow. And the tree canopy was so thick that our aerial we had several aerial recon flights, and they were they were able to locate the tag, the general area, but they could never get an eyeball on any kind of creature or animal that it was on. So. So we came up with a, a paper. We wrote a paper, and I gave that presentation at Beachfoot this year of, of the results um, that we had. And we've been trying to get that uh, published uh, in Jeff Meldrum's uh, RHI. And have, thus far, nobody will peer review it. They'll just say, oh, uh, oh yeah, it's got to be a bear. Oh, yeah, it's got to be a bear. Seven and a half feet high, and if it was a bear, it had to reach it with its paw. And you're going to tell me this very painful cuckoo bear is going to be stuck to a bear's paw for for nine months? I mean, I don't know. We find that difficult to believe. And so, part of the paper is we looked into there are there's a group from Oklahoma State University actually researching bears up in southeast Oklahoma, and they trap them and tag them radio collar them and so we use their research to find out their their patterns of movement their ranges during the different times of the year when they hibernate and we found that uh, female bears according to their uh, calculations or their information uh, female bears and this is in southeast Oklahoma specifically female bears have a range of uh, of anywhere from five to eight square miles uh, with the, depending on which method you use, there's two, two different methods of this adaptive range concept, anywhere from five to eight square miles. And um, the, 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 from the hits that we were able to receive, I think it was like, I want to say 26, 
maybe 25. That sounds about right. Actually, yeah, I remember yeah, from your presentation. Yeah, yeah kits that we that we got on our tag over the nine months that the battery was active until it, before, until it died. Uh, and we used the same method of determining home range. We were able to, depending on which method you use, uh, a, again, the female bears was five or eight square miles. Our, depending, uh, using those same methods, was either 42 or 71 square miles. So we were able to find and and determine or extrapolate a summer summer range, a winter range, and a spring range, and in in this one particular area, and so and it was very active during the winter time when those bears in the same area were hibernating. So we felt fairly confident that we probably tagged what we call a wood ape with one of these little radio transmitter tags. So we're so we're you know we're pretty happy about that. We're uh you know not real happy that we never laid eyeballs on the on the tag. We were hoping even if the tag came off we would find it on the ground with some hair on it. We could get evidence that way. But well it stayed on and it stayed moving for nine months. And then the radio tag uh, expired. The battery expired. So we are we are trying to do that again. We're going to go. Uh, we've, uh, these these radio transmitting tags aren't cheap. We pay for everything out of our pocket. We're not funded by anybody except us. These radio tags are $160 a piece, and we will have gone through you know, quite a few of them already. And some of them turn out to be. Oh, you know, defective for one reason or another, but but um, it's it's something that we are con- going to continue to to try to modify and and work on and collect as much evidence as possible. So so this next year we're going to go all out with every different type of uh, photographic evidence that we can gather that is non-IR. We're we're done with IR. We're done with infrared. It's done. It's we're just done with it. We're going to try some other method other than IR and audio recording. We are going to set out audio long-term audio recordings uh, in multiple locations, and then again we're going to deploy many of these uh, radio uh, tracking devices as well. And 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 we're going to continue to do this and to collect more evidence. Um, as long as we can, until it takes, uh, to whatever it takes to to get this 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 animal uh, proven to science and to protect its its habitat. And 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 I know we get a we get a lot of uh, detractors that say, oh, they're not a conservancy group. Well, got to prove the animal real before you can conserve it. But we do actually. Uh, are, are, are concerned about its habitat, and something that people don't realize is that is that, and you can check this on the government website, Open Spaces, um, that we are losing in the United States 5,000 acres of open space per day in the in the continental United States, and is continuing that way. And not only does this limit wild habitat, but it fragments it which if you you know you put up a mall a Walmart right in the middle of an open space it essentially fragments and becomes now you've got two uh two ecosystems and we're changing ecosystems by clear cutting hardwoods which is what's happening in southeast Oklahoma is that hardwood ecosystems nut bearing hardwoods are being clear cut and being replaced with fast growing pines that is being used for the paper industry. So we are changing ecosystems. So those are the kind of things that we are trying to set aside some areas, some protective areas, uh, so that these these animals will survive and, and thrive. And, and maybe not such a big deal in the Northeast, but in Southeast Oklahoma it is a very big deal. So, yeah, we're busy. We're busy. We got we got our work cut out for us, guys. Yeah. Incredible, incredible. But you know, 
we're getting closing in on the end of the show here, uh, Bob. But you know, what did you guys uh, the the uh, the tagging program, the radio tag program? It's really fascinating, uh, and I think you guys really did get some unique and and, and, and very interesting results. Uh, what did you guys specifically? Was there anything you, you guys specifically learned that you you took away from this endeavor to try it again uh, next year? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, you know, one of the I think most exciting things I think that we that we garnered that that for the different seasons, all of our radio hits were in one specific area for the summer, and for the winter they were in one specific area, and in the spring they were in another area, and these are sort of individual ecosystems, if you will, and in the winter time it was in the more of the pine trees. The hardwoods lose, lose their leaves in the, in the wintertime, the pines. And, and this is close. You wouldn't say this is not a bear. In the wintertime, with these, all these tag hits were down close to a highway and a river in pine trees, not up in the far reaches of the mountains where you think a bear would hibernate. So we are finding areas, in other words, where to look for them at different times of the year. That is really uh-huh. exciting for us. And that, yeah. when you were doing your presentation of Beachfoot, that's one of the things that was really striking to me. It was, I always talk about, you know, the needle in the haystack with a moving needle. And the best that we yeah. can hope for is to shrink uh, the haystack. And, and you've, this project created some predictability as instead of right. looking at all these areas at, at ever, during all seasons, you now have narrowed it down. I'm sure it's still a challenge. It's not like it's, you know, a football field you're okay. talking about you're still right. talking about a large wooded area and uh right the, but but you've you've at least increased your opportunities and lowered the you know the odds of of having something um or collecting data at the very least so yeah i right i was really excited by your what the project that you guys did the the tagging project and and i really enjoyed your presentation at, at beachfoot um you guys are doing, you know, that's something that I hadn't heard anybody ha- having done before, and certainly not with the amount of documentation that uh, NAWAC does. I mean, you guys not only um, go out in the field and and test different things, and you also document what you're doing, which is is a giant leap forward in a lot of Bigfoot research. I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal stuff, people going out and, and interviewing witnesses, but to go out into a specific area repeatedly with the amount of time you guys have invested at all as a group and as individuals, and then to actually document and bring back results and, and vet the evidence that you're collecting, that is outstanding in my opinion. So I appreciate it. I applaud what you guys are doing over there. So Bob, Thank we're you. just, we Thank are actually running right up. Oh, no, we, um, okay. We could, I'm sure we could go on for another hour. In fact, I'll talk to you about coming back on. And there's there's more than we want to talk talk to you about. But uh, I I uh, enjoyed uh, your your presentation here today on Monster X Radio, um, and we'll we'll have you back on real soon, my friend. Okay, great. Thank you, Gunnar. Thank you, Shane. Pleasure. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Um, again, I'd like to thank our guest. Uh, Mr. Bob Strain with uh, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Check out their website. Uh, their paper is is very detailed. And uh, um, if you're interested in in the Bigfoot, the, the actual research and a group that's trying to prove the existence of Bigfoot, you got to check them out. And again, I'd like to thank uh, Bob and and my co-host Shane for joining us today. Monster X, be sure and go to our website, www.monsterxradio.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, Monster X Radio. And we appreciate you being with us today. And we'll be back with you again next week with a brand new episode. Thanks, everybody.
thank you for joining Monster X Radio.